Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson from Beautiful and starting to become very cold. Charlottesville, Virginia, for another week of The Learning Curve, where we talk about great ideas, great stories, and have conversations with great people. But of course, none of this would be possible without the greatest co-hosts in the United States, Kara Candel. I'll take it. And dog. I it's, should say. And dog, yes. The dog is in the background. She's going to be good. What I won't take, though, Gerard, is people from Virginia talking about the cold. No. <laughs> as, you know what? I forgot. We, I'm yeah. speaking to someone in Massachusetts who's got roots yeah, it's like, in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll take that. It hit 40 that. today. My kids were like, Mom, can I wear shorts to school? And I thought, mm, I'm going to consider that request. So, yeah, no. But glad to hear it's been a big week. We are ramping up to the holidays. We've got a great guest this week. I'm sure uh, you were listening to the Carson case as I was Mm -hmm. on, I guess it was Monday. Was it only Monday? Mm -hmm. Is today only Tuesday? What day is it, Gerard? Tuesday. Um, So we're going to be talking to Michael Bendis later today. I know, to me, it feels like it should be January 1. But we're going to be talking to Michael Bendis, and that's pretty exciting because he just argued in front of the Supreme Court. So, yeah, we're lucky to have him. And what are, you, what are you up to in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia today? Well, the girls are getting ready for the last week of class. My wife is uh, slowly but surely tying up the last semester for Blades. this year. She's in person <laughs> at yeah. uh, UVA Law School. I am preparing to finish up work next week, working with teachers and principals on a pretty good project, talking about character education and all those things, and slowly but surely watching and waiting to see who will be the first few appointees to the Yonkin administration here in Virginia. Yeah, I think a lot of people are watching and waiting, and a lot of us in the ed reform space have a lot of suggestions for your new governor, but... I'm sure you do, for sure. So, yeah. And what else is on your radar as we head into this holiday season, which which is, I don't know, it seems to be long to me this year, but that's maybe that's just me with three children. I don't know. Well, on the family side, we're going to hang out with the grandparents on Christmas Day, and then we're going to spend some time here with each other. And even though it's still cold, we'll still get out and see family and friends and all those goodies. So it'll be a good time. What about you? Sing, hosting, cooking, doing all of the things, and I'm wrapping lots and lots of presents. So, yeah, but looking forward. One of the things, I don't know, Jared, I'm going to, I'll just hit you with my story of the week because sure. my story of the week is about parents, which I love to talk about parents. It's fantastic. But with my own parents coming into town, reading this story out of, I guess it's got to be the Denver Post, talking about how, I mean, this just nationwide shortage of teachers, right? For so many, how many years have we been saying there's going to be a teacher shortage and now there really is one. And not only can districts not find teachers, they're leaving in droves for various reasons. They can't find substitute teachers, Gerard. So this from the Denver Post is, is entitled Colorado schools call on parents to help during substitute teacher shortage. Now there is a connection here because my mom who is in her, mid 70s, she won't mind me saying, has quite a few friends in Michigan who have taken on substitute teaching, have come out of retirement to fill some voids in the Detroit area where she lives. Same thing is happening here in Denver. And it's like they're looking everywhere. You know, oftentimes districts have substitute teacher pools. Folks get into the substitute teaching pool in the hopes of getting a permanent position. 
And it sounds like many districts are just grasping at straws. Like, I don't mean to be rude, but are we at a point where it's sort of like, if you have a pulse, you can be a substitute teacher. And that's, of course, not what districts want. So they are calling on parents, which I think is is an interesting approach, especially as parents are coming off of more than a year of having taught their children at home. They're calling on parents to come in and help as they can. In school districts, of course, school districts, charter schools, faith-based schools, private schools are always calling on parents to help in various ways, whether it's PTO or fundraising, whatever it is. But here it's calling on parents to please come in and step in when teachers are sick or when we simply have a shortage. Parents are saying, I can't do it. I might still be taking care of one kid who's not in school full-time. I might still be taking care of family members or I'm trying to juggle work too. So it's just this compounding problem as we come out of the pandemic. And to make matters worse, parents in Denver who are interested in helping are saying, do you know what? It's really too difficult to make this happen. They have to jump through all of these hoops to become substitute teachers. They have to get special licensing and take, and and it's just, um, a lot of them are saying, it's simply not worth it. If you want me to help, I'm here to help, but please make it easier. So this is a challenge for districts because of course I joke and saying, are we just finding somebody who's breathing to come in and be a substitute teacher? And of course, substitute teachers are a really important part of the fabric of schools, right? And under normal circumstances, many schools have substitute teachers who are very well plugged in to what's going on in a school and that works well. But so you want to have standards and regulations, meaning that you're getting quality people to take over, especially if you're going to be a long-term substitute. But it sounds like in some cases, we have not built systems and structures to help people enter the substitute teaching market in a way that's efficient and going to be helpful to school districts, especially during this time of crisis. So I found it to be a really interesting story, Gerard. And uh, maybe my mom will become a substitute teacher at some point. (laughs) We'll see, following the lead of all of her friends who are jumping into the pool. What do you think? I think it's real because I'm hearing the same thing from friends of mine who are superintendents and also friends of mine who are in the classroom. Many of them said, I'm already burnt out just because of all the things dealing with COVID related dynamics. That's number one. And then number two, when my colleague doesn't show up, then I either have to take over her or his class or we've got to bring someone in. Well, guess what? If we can't find any someone, now we have to double, which then brings in the challenge of trying to make sure students are distanced safely. So there are a lot of things going on, but I do think there's something that we as a choice and reform related community have to take some ownership from. While many of us have supported 20, 30, some five years school reform. Some of our language about accountability and standards, while we didn't mean it to become anti-teacher or anti-teaching profession, came off that way. And now we're starting to see some of the unintended consequences of some of the seeds that fell on the type of soil we did not want. Because when I talk to people about school choice, some people say, you know what? I didn't get involved in education. I was going to teach, but everything was either I'm going to go to charter school or private school. But guess what? You guys made the profession pretty bad. So that's just something for us within the family to think about. You made it sound pretty bad is what you mean, right? It made it sound really unattractive. Some of our conversation made it seem like teaching, if you don't teach in a charter or a choice school and you have to go to a traditional school, good luck, happy hunting. When, frankly, some of our people don't like what they call government schools. I think public schools are bad, but we fed into that. And I say, I know you and I aren't one of the ones who did it intentionally, but that's just 
one way to look at it. Number two, who wants to take the chance of going into a school and finding themselves also possibly becoming ill, even with the shot? Whole nother yeah. story. So yeah. I think there's a deeper dynamic in terms of, and I think you hit on one of the points, we don't have a strong pipeline. When we were in um, Orlando, your organization's event, I ran into David, I can't think of David's last name, but he runs and has for years a nonprofit organization that's focused on alternative certification for bringing teachers yes. into the profession. And I'm sure we'll find his name once we post this. But David's been saying this for almost a decade. He said, you have to build a pipeline early. Think about this. Think about the number of military personnel who are coming back to places like Virginia, for example, large military state, or other parts of the country. We have a troops to teacher program. It means that A, we have a template in place, but maybe there's some things we need to maneuver in order to bring in qualified military personnel to fill some of those gaps. Many of them enter military service for public service. Education is part of public service and public good. So I think that's one area we can tap into. You talked about our uh, retired teachers. I'm all for and have actually said we have a number of retired teachers who are veterans who would like to come in. Now, wearing my former state hat, one thing states have to watch out for is teachers who are retired working X number of hours per month and that possibly impacting their retirement benefits and yes, pay. Yes. So there's a nuance that our state chiefs and school soups, I'm sure, will work out, but we can do it. But just realize there is a point where you're going to dip into that and teachers are going to say no. But you also have former principals who would love to come back into the classroom and teach. So I've said a lot of things. I just think this is a tough situation. Human bodies aren't enough. I think we have to have a right. conversation about teaching that makes it more humane, not just about human beings. Well, and I think that's right on, Jordan. I think we rarely talk about substitute teaching as a pipeline. We rarely, as a community, are really yep. looking at, you know, you think about substitute teaching as something separate. And I will just say one more thing, and that is to the point you made about some people still not feeling safe in schools. Rates of COVID are different around the country, and they're going to be continue to be different, et cetera. But when you're bringing folks out of retirement to teach, whether they were former principals or former teachers or that could very well be a much more vulnerable population. So I think too, mm -hmm. that this speaks to, we've come off a year and a half of remote learning. This article says that some schools have to go back remote because they simply have a shortage of staff. Well, again, what are we learning from this pandemic about leveraging technology in mm -hmm. times of crisis? And so I would have liked to read more about that in this article. And hopefully maybe we'll have David, when we figure out his last name, we will have David on to talk to us about pipelines. And I think that that's a very worthy conversation. And speaking of technology listeners, you know that we've interviewed Julie Young, who's now at Arizona State University. I would uh, go to the Pioneer webpage, to Learning Curve page, or wherever you find us, and type in Julie Young and listen to what she has to say, because she's an expert. We've also had a couple of other people on our show who've talked about using technology, because whether you like it or not, for a whole host of reasons, moral, ethical, otherwise, technology can be your friend. And here is an example where we need a friend like this and really bad. So thanks for that story. Amen. So naturally, New Jersey and Virginia will receive a lot of attention because it's a statewide election. But we also had an election in New York City for a new mayor and Mayor-elect Eric Adams 
former police officer, a member of local government. He's now in a position where he can do some monumental things. And he said that education to him was pretty important. And he at least took one step toward making that a reality by making his first cabinet level appointment. And that is of a gentleman named David Banks, who is the new chancellor of New York City Schools. Some of you may know of David Banks because of his work with the Eagle Academy in New York City, which started off as a small network of schools, public traditional schools, innovative schools, although not charter, that were created in part with a partnership with 100 Black Men. In the early 2000s, then Senator Hillary Clinton was uh, at one of the announcements of the school. And so it's now grown to a network where they have schools in the different boroughs. He started his career in different parts of public, private, but then became a school principal. And from a school principal, he worked his way up the system. When the mayor was actually running for office before he was elected, David Banks was one of the people he went to for advice. So here's someone who worked in the traditional system of New York City public schools, was a principal, has cachet with principals and teachers, part of the union, and who decided to create a public school network that wasn't a charter school because he said, hey, I want to show that we can do innovative things within the structure of public schools, and I will say amen to that. And he said, now I'm going to step up and become the chancellor. Well, I have an opportunity to live in New York for a couple of years in the mid-90s. In fact, I was there when Rudy Crew was the chancellor of schools. I also know Joe Klein. Many of you know that New York City is the largest public school system in the United States, more than a million students, more than 100,000 employees. It is a bureaucracy and it is a big place to manage. So many of our listeners will know that New York is a mayor controlled school system, meaning the mayor will appoint the chancellor, not the school board. And that was a change that came about in part during a wave of changes in the 80s and the 90s to big city school systems from New York to Cleveland to New York, but also in places like Jersey City and Newark. And so uh, Joe Klein would have been the first chancellor under the new system. So I wish David luck. I had a chance to meet him in a part in, uh, in, my, in a different life that I led when he spoke at one of our Bayo meetings. What I am optimistic about is he's someone who worked through the system, so he's got some credibility. Number two, he was uh, willing to reform the system by being in the system. Three, he's got a pretty good track record for taking low-income young men, mostly Hispanic and African-American, and moving them off into college, to jobs, to entrepreneurship. So wish him luck. I think this is a bold uh, step for the mayor-elect. It's a good signal. But as we know, he's got to work with stakeholders who kind of like things the way they are. But there's one thing he said, and most of what I'm talking about, you'll find in the New York Times article that our team would put on the Web page. It's this. And I'll paraphrase. He said, if 75 percent of the white students in New York were not doing well in reading, the city would be on fire. But because it's not 75% white, because it's 75% black and brown, we kind of accept it as business as usual. What do you think? Well, my first thought is to the very last point, 
are you listening, Boston Public Schools? Just saying. <laughs> because that same, this could be, I'm just getting in trouble today, right? I hear you. I mean, this could no, be applied to so many of our urban districts. Um, not just urban districts, so many of our districts, right? That we look, we, we say, oh no, there's nothing to see here. Everything's going okay. And you look underneath the hood and you look at like, you know, like in Boston, it's the kids who attend the exam schools are doing just fine. Well, here's a little secret. Most of them are not children of color. And so I think his point is very, very well taken. I too am excited for this. I think that it's a bold move. It says a lot about the new mayor's priorities. Man, oh man, I mean, you put your things around it. You're talking about how large New York City, it's like just the city school system. It's so much bigger than what any most school districts in America would even have to think about. So I hope that there are ways around what is no doubt just a lumbering bureaucracy and that the new chancellor can find a way. And I think others in the position have made, well, some others in the position have made earnest attempts to make it happen. And you mentioned Joel Klein. I mean, I think that it's remembering that mantra, like the city would be on fire if we were talking about white kids here is really, really important. And I'm inspiring people who have long worked in a system that some probably perceive as like a bit intractable, right? To get the work done on behalf of kids. And especially at this particular moment, this inflection point in American history, it's a big job ahead and cheers to the man who has agreed to take it on. So I like that story of the week, Gerard. And I think that all eyes are on your home state right now, watching the governor. And uh, in terms of school systems, we're going to be looking at New York as well. So much to talk about in the months to come. Have you, being Boston, have you returned to the elected board selecting your superintendent or is it still mayoral appointed? Mayoral appointed. Okay. And our producer, Jamie Gass, is going to text me right now and tell me if I've missed the news here. But yeah, no, I mean, talk about a system that's not, well, again, I say, how many times a show do I say this? This is uh, another show, right? But talk about a system that's got some work to do. And it's not discussed here in the Commonwealth because we sort of, we have this tendency in the Bay State to say like, oh, but we're number one. And then Mm -hmm. look away from what's really going on under the hood. I know, I know everybody is really, really surprised to hear that Massachusetts is not perfect. But coming up, Gerard, we are going to be talking to Michael Bendis, which is really exciting. We are very grateful to Michael Bendis from IJ for taking the time out to chat with we peons who have not argued in front of the Supreme Court. So really looking forward to talking to him coming up in just a moment. Well, listeners, we have got with us today Michael Bendis. He's been here before, and we're super lucky to have him this week. As many of you know, he is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, and he leads IJ's educational choice team. Really excitingly, many of you probably listened to him just this past week. He's the lead attorney in Carson v. Macon, which is uh, the latest school choice case before the Supreme Court. Michael was also part of IJ's litigation team in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, in which the U.S. Supreme Court held that the exclusion of religious options from Montana's educational choice program was unconstitutional. Prior to joining IJ in 2005, Michael spent three years as an attorney with Perkins Coy. He is a former law clerk to Judge Risa Hawkins-Barksdale of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit 
and served as an engineer officer in the United States Army and Pennsylvania Army National Guard before beginning his legal career. He received his undergraduate degree from the United States Military Academy and his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Michael Bendis, thank you for being with us today and congrats on an excellent job last week. <laughs> well, thank you. It's very kind of you to say, but thanks for having me, Karen Gerard. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about educational choice and about Carson versus Macon. Yeah. Well, no. So we're not fluffing your ego. You know, a lot of us nerds were listening and nerding out. And I, I have to say, I had several text chains going with my colleagues. And although I hang out with a group that's very biased towards school choice, we were like, yeah, yeah, this is great. This feels good. This feels right. So it's very exciting. <laughs> Tell, I want to hear about the plaintiffs from the case, of course, but just we've had a couple of folks on before who have argued in front of the Supreme Court, but like, can you just give me a couple words Describe that feeling when you're when you're up arguing before the highest court in the land. Intimidating and nerve wracking would uh, I think yeah. be good descriptors. <laughs> so this was my first time arguing before the court. I've been involved in several cases that had been up there before, but uh, I hadn't had the chance to argue, and so it was as you can imagine, very intimidating because you've got nine of the greatest legal minds in the country. And for me, just some, you know, short dude from New Jersey who has never argued before the court (laughs) to stand before them. It was humbling. It was intimidating. It was, like I said, nerve wracking. But I don't think I, uh, you know, did anything too terrible or or didn't hopefully make a clown of myself. (laughs) You did not. uh, I can attest to that as someone who listened all the way through. I have to know. And here's one thing I was thinking, Jordan's going to kill me for asking questions off the books. But like, do you sleep the night before you're about to argue a case like that? Is that a thing that people are able to do? I I thought I was going to have a hard time falling asleep. I got to tell you, I haven't slept as well as I did the night before in quite some time. And I don't know why that is. And I got a good night's sleep. I got a good workout in the morning of the argument. And I don't know why that is. because That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it surprised me. I love it. I know I wouldn't sleep, but I'm I'm also never going to be in that position. So, Michael, let's refresh everybody's memory here. So we have talked um, a lot about the Espinoza case on this show, but we've talked a lot less about this case out of Maine. Tell us a little bit about the lead plaintiffs, the Carsons. Sure. The the Carsons are a a wonderful family who live in a town called Glenburn, Maine. It's close to Bangor. And Glenburn does not have a public high school. And in Maine, there are quite a few towns that don't have public high schools. And if a town doesn't have a public high school or doesn't contract with a school to educate the students from that town, then they have to provide tuition to the family to, in turn, attend the school of their choice. It can be a public school in a neighboring school district. It can be a private school. It can be in-state. It can be out-of-state. It can even be out of the country. And the state routinely pays for kids to attend some of the most kind of elite prep schools throughout the country. All the kind of blue blood prep schools you hear about in New England, the state has paid for kids to attend some of those schools, uh, to attend schools as far away as Colorado, Michigan, California. But there's one type of school that a student can absolutely not uh, select under this program, and that is any school that the state deems to be sectarian. 
And by sectarian, they mean any any school that provides religious instruction, essentially. So the Carsons, again, they live in Glenburn, which is one of these tuitioning towns, meaning families from that town, because the town doesn't have a, a public high school or contract with a school to educate the resident students. They were entitled to tuition assistance under this program, but they believed that Bangor Christian School was the best school for their daughter, Olivia. And because they decided to send Olivia to this so-called sectarian school, they could not get this tuition benefit that they were otherwise fully entitled to. Basically, they had to make a choice, either choose the school they knew was best for their daughter, which was this Christian school, or get the tuition benefit, but they couldn't get both. And another family, another one of the plaintiffs in this case that we represent, the Nelson family, were in a similar position. They also lived in a town, uh, Palermo, that doesn't have a public high school. So they were also entitled to the tuition benefit. They likewise desired a religious school for their children, and they knew that that was the best option for their children, but they could not afford to go without the tuition assistance benefit. So they were forced with the same choice that the Carsons were, but because they could not afford tuition on their own, they had to forego the school they knew was best for their kids and their constitutional right to select a religious school. And they opted instead to take the tuition assistance benefit again, because they couldn't afford to go without it. And so uh, that's really what Maine's policy, this non-sectarian requirement in the program does. It forces parents to choose between a right that they're entitled to, this tuition assistance benefit, or their free exercise right to select the school, you know, the religious school that they believe is best for their children, but they can't have both. And government simply doesn't have any business putting families to that kind of choice. But Michael, I want to go back for a minute because, correct me if I'm wrong, but so Maine's school tuition program has been around for a really long time. And when it was first established back in 1873, there was a a faith-based option. There was a religious option, wasn't there? And then it was in the 80s that the legislature and the state attorney general said that we're not going to do this anymore. Is that correct? And if if so, can you talk about this part of the case? Yeah, that it's a great question and great point. For more than a century, religious schools were allowed to participate in this program, and students routinely chose religious schools alongside their non-religious counterparts. And it was great because you had a fully diverse array of choices for students to select from, and for parents that think you know a religious education is right for the kids, they were empowered to choose that. But in 1980, in response to an inquiry from a state legislator, the Maine Attorney General issued an opinion claiming that it was unconstitutional under the federal constitution to allow religious schools to participate in the program. If it wasn't clear back then that that was just an incorrect legal 
conclusion. It certainly became clear that that was incorrect in you know the years subsequent to 1980, as the Supreme Court in a number of cases held that it's perfectly fine for religious schools to participate alongside their non-religious counterparts in programs like this that operate on private parental choice. But nevertheless, so you know you had a, a century plus of parents being allowed to select religious schools under the program. Now all of a sudden in 1980, the state does a complete reverse course. And the impact of, the, of that decision was tremendous. You have a great example of what happened in the wake of that decision. There was a school called John Baptist High School. It was a Catholic school that at the time in 1980 educated more students receiving this tuition benefit than any other religious school in the state. And once the state announced this new policy that religious schools would no longer be able to participate, John Baptist high school was forced with a choice. It could either maintain its Catholic identity and no longer be able to educate these students who were receiving the tuition benefit and who couldn't otherwise afford to remain in the school without that benefit, or it could shed its Catholic identity and continue to educate those students. And it had to make that decision, and it chose the latter. It actually had to mm. shut down and reopen as a non-Catholic secular high school so that these students wouldn't be out of the great education that they were receiving. And again, that's the sort of choice the government has no business putting citizens or schools to. It is perfectly permissible for religious options to be provided in these types of programs. And when Maine made that decision to take those options away, it quite literally forced at least one religious school to shutter its doors and reopen as something it wasn't, as a secular school, just so that students would not be kind of put out on the street and be out of this great education that they had been receiving. Yeah, well, it seems clear there that at least the school was trying to operate in the best interest of students, even though... It had to make a great sacrifice. It's listening to you speak, too. I'm reminded of what's going on right now in D.C. with the Build Back Better bill, where they've structured pre-kindergarten to be so that it will look like some faith-based preschools could be direct recipients of federal aid and face the same choice. So now this is a different show, Michael. I digress, but um, a theme <laughs> that keeps recurring. So now I want to ask you about when the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit Jamie Gass and I, we got to attend that hearing here in Boston. When they heard the case, so, and this is something, again, that school choice nerds will definitely want to hear about. There's this claim in the ruling that religious schools actually weren't discriminated against in Maine's own tuitioning program, as long as they didn't conduct religious instruction, which one would think, okay, so that's a little bit of a head scratcher, because if you're a religious school, that's kind of what you do. But so they were making, though, this distinction between religious status and use in schooling. So can you like break that down in a way that like my mom who has no interest in such <laughs> issues could understand it? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I can understand it, so let, <laughs> let me try. When the First Circuit issued its decision four months prior to the First Circuit's decision, the U.S. Supreme Court had handed down its decision in a case you mentioned earlier, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And what was going on in that case was Montana passed a school choice program. The agency charged with 
administering that program issued a regulation excluding religious schools from the program, and we challenged that exclusion. We went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held that that exclusion of religious options in the program was unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution because government cannot single out and exclude schools from a program like that simply because the schools are religious, meaning simply because they have a religious identity or status. And so it seemed in the light of that opinion that the First Circuit would come to a similar conclusion regarding Maine's religious exclusion. But what the First Circuit did was say, yeah, we know the Supreme Court just said a state can't exclude schools because they are religious, because they have a religious status. But that's not what Maine is doing here. Maine's not excluding schools because they are religious. It's excluding schools because of the religious things that they do, like provide religious instruction, which most religious schools do. And in the First Circuit's view, this distinction between excluding a school because it is religious as opposed to excluding a school because of the religious things it does was a constitutionally meaningful distinction. And so basically what the First Circuit said is we know a state cannot exclude schools simply because they are religious, but we think it's perfectly fine for a state to exclude schools because they do religious stuff like teach religion. And that is essentially the issue that we asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review is can a state exclude a school simply because it does what religious schools do, which is provide religious instruction along with all of the other secular instruction that they provide. And hopefully the Supreme Court answers that question correctly. But again, I I, I don't know if that did a good job explaining this supposed distinction between status and use, but that's really what it is. is. Can a state, we know a state can't exclude schools because they are religious. Can it get away with discriminating against schools by claiming we're only keeping them out because of the religious things that they do? Is that permissible discrimination or is that just as unconstitutional as the discrimination that was going on in Espinoza? So let's stick with another state with an M in the name. This is Montana. So in 2020, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of plaintiffs in the Espinoza case. And we had a chance to speak with you and Kendra as well. That was a major victory for choice, and IJ really drove that. Talk to us about the Espinoza decision and its likely impact on Carson case that's uh, already before the court. Yeah, so as I mentioned, Espinoza kind of resolved this question of whether a state can exclude schools simply because they are religious. It, I guess, technically left open the question of whether a state can do what Maine is doing, which is saying, hey, we're not excluding schools because they are religious, but because of the religious things that they do. But critically, there were two things that the court said in Espinoza that I do think signal what the court is likely to do in Carson. The first thing is, in the opinion for the court, Chief Justice Roberts noted the fact that some of his colleagues on the court had questioned whether there is a meaningful distinction between discrimination based on religious use 
and discrimination based on religious status. And he was alluding specifically to Justice uh, Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, who had, in a, in a couple of concurring opinions, questioned whether there is any distinction at all or whether this is you know, really just kind of two sides of the same coin. And what the chief said in his opinion in Espinoza is, we acknowledge the point, meaning we acknowledge this criticism that some of our colleagues have made, but we don't need to address it in this case. So he's at least recognizing in that language from Espinoza that, hey, maybe there's no distinction to be made here. Maybe this truly is just a matter of how you describe what's going on, because as, as Justice Gorsuch famously put it, you can ask, is the state discriminating against Lutherans or is it discriminating against people who do Lutheran stuff? It's the same discrimination either way, and, and we shouldn't pretend that it's not. And so, again, that's the kind of first thing in Espinosa, I think, that kind of perhaps signals what we might see in Carson is that the court recognized in the majority opinion that some of the members of the court have really questioned whether there is any meaningful distinction to be made between religious status and religious use. The other thing that the chief did was after holding that Montana's religious status discrimination had to be subjected to what, what we call strict scrutiny, which is the most searching form of judicial review of a state law, where the law is almost always going to be held unconstitutional unless the government can come up with an, an extremely compelling interest to justify the law. After saying that Montana's exclusion, which turned on religious status, was subject to this strictest level of scrutiny, Chief Justice Roberts for the court wrote, nothing we're saying is meant to suggest that some lesser degree of scrutiny would apply to a law that discriminated based on religious use. Again, he didn't hold that this strict scrutiny, this test, this most searching level of scrutiny would apply to a religious use-based exclusion, but he said nothing in our opinion should be read to suggest that some lesser level of scrutiny would apply. So again, here he's saying, or it at least seems to be saying that the court is going to look just as strongly and just as searchingly at a supposedly use-based exclusion as the court did a status-based exclusion in Espinoza. And if that's the case, if the court does apply that same very stringent level of scrutiny, I don't see how Maine's exclusion can survive here. So, you know, it's a long way of saying that Espinoza doesn't squarely address the issue here, but there are a couple of things that the court dropped in the opinion that seem to suggest that the court would view what Maine is doing as just as problematic as what Montana was doing in Espinoza. I'm married to a law professor, someone who actually practiced law prior to going to the academy, and lawyers do a really good job of going through the detail and analysis of words, which is really important. So for our listeners who aren't lawyers or may not follow policy a great deal, one question I get from them, and in fact, they were pretty excited about uh, me talking to you. They said, well, assume that the court rules in favor of Carson. What will this mean for school choice and religious liberty from your point of view? Well, there's the immediate impact, I think, of a good ruling, and then there's kind of the broader national impact. Of course, the immediate impact is going to be in Maine. Parents will finally be able to choose religious schools for their kids if they believe that's the best fit for their kid. They've been denied that choice for over four decades under this program, 
and they will get that choice back. So that's kind of the immediate impact. In terms of the kind of broader national significance of uh, a ruling in our favor, I think the most important aspect of that would be this. It would remove one of the key arguments that school choice opponents have relied on in attacking school choice programs for decades. Every time a state legislature considers adopting a new school choice program or expanding an existing school choice program, opponents of school choice run to the state house and say, you can't do that. You can't have a school choice program in this state. Our state doesn't allow you know, public money to flow to religious schools. Our state constitution has a Blaine Amendment that prohibits any uh, public funding of religious schools. And uh, they argue either that this, the legislature has to reject the bill they're considering or at least exclude religious options from any program. If they're not successful there in defeating the program and the program becomes law, then they run to the courthouse and they say the same thing. They file a lawsuit challenging the program, saying you cannot have religious options in these programs. They have to be excluded. Court shut down this program or at least expel the religious options from the program. If the court rules correctly in Carson, that argument will be gone. Opponents of school choice will no longer be able to say our state constitution, our Blaine Amendment, whatever state constitutional provision that might be, they will no longer be able to say our constitution prohibits the inclusion of religious options in these types of programs because it will be clear as a matter of federal constitutional law that a state cannot exclude religious options from a program like this. And that's really where the kind of bigger national implication of a ruling in our favor will be. It will remove this argument once and for all that school choice opponents continue to make in attacking programs, either in, in the state house or in the courthouse, and legislators will finally be able to rest secure in the notion that they can pass these programs, that these programs will be legally sound, and that the inclusion of religious options is not only permissible, but required if you're going to provide non-religious private options as well. So I'm in the Commonwealth. We have a new governor-elect, uh, Youngkin, new lieutenant governor, AG as well. They've talked about the importance of parental choice. Virginia compared to, let's say, a Florida or an Arizona, not in the same league in terms of parental choice, particularly in the private sector, had a lot to do with our Constitution. So am I reading this or reading into it that if we get a favorable win uh, in Carson, states like Virginia will have an opportunity to open up their doors in new ways, and even states like Florida and Arizona, which are very mature, in the choice market, they too will be able to take it to the next level. Absolutely, because for so long in so many states, legislators have heard from school choice opponents, you can't do it here, you can't do it in this state. We have a Blaine Amendment. We have state law that prohibits funding of religious schools, et cetera, et cetera. That argument will finally be put to rest if the court rules correctly and legislators will now be able to confidently adopt these programs, grow these programs, and know that whatever provision of state law, whether it's a Blaine Amendment or some other similar provision, that those cannot be wielded as weapons to take to attack these programs or to take 
the educational opportunity that they provide to students away from those students. That would be a, let's just say a nice holiday present or New Year's present to a lot of families in Virginia as well as the rest of the country. Well, I don't have any other questions, but just want to thank you and IJ. I believe this is your 30th year in work in terms of IJ. And people, when they look 100 years from now and try to identify how did we come to a point where we actually accepted parental choice programs in the public and private sector as being just part of our natural quilt of opportunity, they're going to look back and see your work, the work of IJ, the work of its founders, its supporters, and others are saying they were the ones willing to take on the fight in courts when other people did not or did not believe they could make it work. So thank you for all you do. Thank you, Gerard. That's very kind of you to say, and I appreciate it. And listeners, this has been The Learning Curve with IJ's Michael Bendis. Michael, take care, and we will, I'm sure, be calling you when we get the verdict sometime in 2022. And my tweet of the week comes from a former guest, Citizen Stewart. And what Chris said on December 10th is, quote, charter school teachers are more diverse than traditional public school teachers. That, in fact, is a fact. The teaching core is more diverse than the traditional public school systems. I would say the same is true for the principal core. So, Chris, thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah. He's always really good at like, I like reading Chris's tweets first thing in the morning, just remind us all <laughs> what we should be talking about and why we do the work. So excellent stuff. All right, Gerard, do you know that this is our last show together of 2021? We're going to take a little hiatus. I know that you are going to eat very healthfully and you are right on track with that healthy diet, but I'm looking forward to lots of Christmas cookies. It's also Girl Scout cookie season, which is kind of tragic. Mm. You, it, mm-hmm. I mean, such timing. I'm wishing you and yours such a wonderful holiday season. Your card is beautiful, by the way, your holiday card. Mine's in the mail. I can't oh, say thanks that a lot. as nice as yours. Yes, it's really, really gorgeous photo of your family. But wishing our listeners and wishing you such happy holidays. Merry Christmas if you celebrate it. Hanukkah has already passed. And just a wonderful new year. And I think that I have to say, I, for one, Gerard, am feeling quite optimistic about 2022 on so many levels. I think Michael has just given us reason to be optimistic. I think we're coming out of what's been a tough couple of years for all of us, and we're getting used to this new life as normal. And I'm just so grateful to you, my friend, for being able to have this conversation every week despite the few weeks we take a vacation and to our listeners for continuing to tune in, because if they didn't do that, we would just be talking to what we're talking to each other, but I don't know, talking to no one. So have a wonderful (laughs) one, Gerard. Same to you. And my new year's wish for all of you is that we are healthier, safer, and more kind to each other. And Gerard, we are starting off the new year with a bang because we are going to be speaking to the incomparable Barry Weiss. I'm really, really excited about it. And what a great way to kick off 2022. Until then, friends, stay healthy. I wish you great happiness and a wonderful ringing in of the new year. Cheers. Cheers.